Well, as most of you know, Kate and the girls and I came to South Carolina from the north. So we are Yankees, and uh, we came from Pittsburgh, which means we're having a horrible NFL season. But um, still, we're faithful fans. But uh, Pittsburgh is a foreign land, really, to us here now in the low country. The two do not really have much in common at all. First of all, Pittsburgh is not low, right? This is the low country, and Pittsburgh is not low. They, when they uh, name something Mount Anything, they actually mean it in Pittsburgh, right? <laughs> we live here in Mount Pleasant, and there is no Mount anywhere. Um, but in Pittsburgh, it's all hills. You know, it's the three rivers and all hills, which is why it has the most bridges in the world. I don't know if you knew that, but more than Venice. Venice has 400 bridges and Pittsburgh has 446. So there you go. That's some fun facts for you for your cocktail parties. Um, you've probably seen, if you've seen any pictures of Pittsburgh, you may have seen a picture of the incline, which are those little trolley cars that climb up and down the mounts, Mount Washington, which is actually a real mount in Pittsburgh. And um, the, the, you know, now they're just kind of tourist attractions, but they actually used to carry heavy cargo up the mountain and everything like that. We lived, our house was right at the top of one of the old lines of the incline. And uh, they would carry all these uh, horses and carriages and things like that up the mount on these little trolleys. And that has nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted to share that with you. <laughs> but um, still, uh, so Pittsburgh and Charleston are not very, not very similar, but there is something that they share in common. And that is the churches. The churches. Charleston, as you know, has a nickname, the Holy City. And it's because of all of its churches. It has this famous skyline where you look at the skyline of Charleston and you see steeples. And uh, it is a city full of churches. And Pittsburgh is actually very similar to this. It is chock full of churches. Every neighborhood has many of them. We lived in the south side of the city, and it was famous for its bars and its churches. That's what it had, and it's, it was where one of the big steel mills used to be, so that's what you need when you want to run a steel mill. You need churches and you need bars. Um, but uh, every couple of blocks, there was a church, to the point where they even had a church tour every year, where you could go around and see all the different buildings in the neighborhood. And uh, all this was the result of uh, the steel mills, as I said, the many ethnic groups that were brought in to work the mills in the 19th century. Uh, J&L Steel, that was the mill that was right there in the south side. Now it's the Steelers' practice facility, um, so it's hallowed ground for a Pittsburgher. And, uh, but one of the ways that the steel barons used to get the workers, guys like Jones and Laughlin, that was J&L, or Carnegie and Frick, the way they would get a lot of their workers to come is they would go over to Europe and they would promise them jobs, that's the first thing, but then they would often go into these small towns and they would go to the priest, the village priest, and they would promise them to build them a church in Pittsburgh if they came and if they helped convince their village to come. And so they basically would set up a replica of their village right near the mill. And this was the ways they would keep their workers happy. Bring the church, bring everybody. And so that's what these guys would do. And so uh, they would, these would often be towns in Poland and Eastern Europe and places like that. And uh, they would bring them over and the churches 
would be affiliated with a particular ethnic group then usually because it was a whole town that had come. And so in Pittsburgh, you have the Polish Catholic Church. You have the Ukrainian Catholic Church. You've got the Croatian Catholic Church. You have the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, you know, and and then occasionally even an old Presbyterian church and an Anglican church for the minority Protestants. But there were lots and lots of churches all throughout Pittsburgh. And the sad thing is that the vast majority of these churches are now empty. They're empty. Now they are just historic buildings. In the five years that we uh, were doing ministry in the south side there, we saw church after church being sold and turned into condos. They were historic buildings, so they still had to look like a church on the outside. But the inside, they were now modern condos for you know, the young yuppies to work and live in. And um, it was a stark reminder that the church is not a place. When we talk about the church, we're not talking about a location where worship happens. We are t- it's, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about the people when we talk about the church. We are the church. Without people, uh, what we often think of as churches are nothing more than pretty buildings. They might have some value to us. They might have a lot of historical significance. But if there aren't people there worshiping, then it's not the church. And uh, I use this intro because we are moving into a new series called We the Church. We're going to be talking about what it means to be the church. And uh, so we're going to be talking about us for the next few weeks. So you guys should be happy, right? We all love hearing about ourselves. (laughs) I do anyway. Um, So we the church. And uh, being that we are the church, we naturally ask then, what is our purpose? Why do we exist? What is our goal? What is our aim as a group? Our goal has been the same as it has been since the day Jesus ascended into heaven. We are called to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what our mission is here at Holy Cross, to make disciples. And uh, we, the church, then, exist to share the good news that we've received with those who have not yet heard it. We heard Jesus say it last week in our passage about Zacchaeus. We heard him sum up his interactions with Zacchaeus by saying he came to seek and save the lost. He tells us why he came. He came to seek and save the lost. His purpose has not changed, even though he has ascended into heaven. It's not changed at all. It's just that now he continues to do that same work through us. That's how he chooses to do it. We are his body on earth now. We carry this good news to the world. It's it's the old slogan of Holy Cross that we exist for those who are not yet members. We exist for those who are not yet members. So this is actually what went wrong with all those churches up in my hometown, up in Pittsburgh, and in the north in general, really. They lost sight of their purpose. They lost sight of their message. Some of them did it deliberately in the name of progress and in the name of you know, cultural sensitivity. Uh, they embraced a more liberal theology that denied the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And, uh, and so they kind of severed themselves from biblical, a biblical understanding of our faith. But many of the churches uh, simply just took for granted the fact that they thought they had a steady supply of people 
You know, they were just going to continue to have people that would show up, that would keep their church going, because they had all these families that worked the mills and the generations, you know, and that worked for a long time. As long as the mill was open, we'll be fine. And, um, but the problem was, is they forgot their purpose to actually go and reach out to those uh, in the surrounding areas, the people that were not like them. They forgot to go and make disciples of all nations, as opposed to their particular ethnic group. And so when the culture began to shift, which it did in the 70s and 80s, and the mills started closing, they didn't know how to move on from that model of waiting for everybody to come to them. They didn't know how to switch and shift to going out to the neighborhood where the people were. They had lost sight of their call. Now the church in Corinth, which we read about today uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, had some similarities to this. It was a church that had also lost sight of its purpose in many ways. The people there also had a very difficult time embracing those who were different from them. Uh, Many of the problems that Paul addresses in his first letter to the Corinthians, which is really what that letter is, is Paul addressing a lot of problems in this church. It should be encouraging for us 2,000 years later that we haven't changed much. Um, that's supposed to be funny. But um, <laughs> anyhow, the, uh, the problems that Paul was addressing fell along uh, ethnic lines. They fell along, uh, fell along economic lines. And they fell along cultural lines. So the Jewish Christians, there were many who were converted Jews who had become believers in Jesus. The Jewish Christians did not like or accept the Greek Christians because there were all these Greeks who uh, had become Christians in Corinth and vice versa. They didn't like each other very much. They didn't get along very well. They were from completely different cultures. And now they were here trying to start and be a part of this new thing, the church. And it was even along the lines of economic uh, lines. As I was saying, rich members looked down on the poor ones. And they even went as far as to ostracize them from communion. That's one of the things that Paul addresses in this letter, is that they were continuing on in the social norm, which was the more important you were, the closer you were to the table when you would have a meal. And then, you know, it would go out in circles. And the further you, away from, you were from the table, spoke about your social status. You were not important. And that was the way it was in the Corinthian culture, and the Christians were doing that with communion, which you remember, communion back then was an actual meal. It wasn't just bread and wine like we have. They would sit down to a meal together and have fellowship, and the rich, important people would sit around the table, and often the poor, the widows, the orphans, the very people that we heard uh, Micah say we're supposed to take care of, they were often out in the courtyard because they weren't important. This is how the church was relating. And they took that same kind of logic, that same kind of uh, hierarchical understanding of themselves, and they applied it to the spiritual gifts, which is what Paul's addressing in our specific chapter. They were saying that some gifts were more important than others. Some took primacy over others. And so if you had these gifts, you were good and significant. If you didn't, then you were kind of unimportant. We don't care about you. And Paul addresses this and reveals the fact that they had completely lost sight of what they were about, what they were supposed to be existing for. Competition and comparison had taken over, and they had lost sight of the nature of their fellowship. 
And before we get too judgmental on the Corinthians, which is always tempting, uh, we need to remember that we do the same exact thing. We set up hierarchies all the time. You know, we get obsessed with comparison all the time. I certainly do. You know, and we want sameness often instead of difference. We don't want to reach out to somebody who's different from us. We just want people that are kind of like us. And it makes us feel better. Well, this is why Paul uses this image today of the body, the physical body, when he talks about us, the church. Because a physical body needs each part to function in its own way in harmony with all the other parts to make the body work. Right? A body needs to have all of its members functioning in their own particular spot to function properly. And Paul tells us that we are the body. We are the body of Christ. And as we said earlier, Jesus hasn't changed his purpose. His purpose is to seek and save the lost. He just goes about it differently now because he uses us to do it. We are his body on earth. We are the physical representation of Christ for people as the church. And Paul explains to us and to the Corinthians that we often get it all wrong. God has given each of us unique gifts and abilities, unique interests and passions to use. We're not supposed to be the same. That's what he's saying in this passage. We're not supposed to do the same thing. Some people are the feet, some are the hands, some are the eyes, some are the ears, some are the mouth, some are the lungs, some are the liver, you know, on and on. We are all different, but together we make up one body. He says if we were all hands, you know, if we were all eyes, if we were all ears, we would make one weird-looking body, wouldn't we? I mean, it just would be strange. You wouldn't even call it a body. And it wouldn't function. <clears throat> it would just sit there doing nothing. It would be a collection of different members, and that wouldn't work. And it seems obvious to us, you know, when Paul says it, it's like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But when you think about the church, and you think about the way we often relate to each other, and the way we often talk uh, about, you know, what Christian, what Christian life looks like, we always tend to fall into this thinking that we're supposed to be doing the same things. <clears throat> that we're all supposed to look just like each other. You know, we compare just like the Corinthians. Uh, I need to be as good at hospitality as Sandy or Karen, you know. Or I need to be able to share my faith and be as good at evangelism as my wife Kate, which I am not, you know. She is amazing at it. It's natural. And I can't do it that way. Or I need to be able to lead a life group like Barnwell or whatever it is. You know, we start comparing ourselves and saying, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. There's somehow an ideal that we form, and we think that's what we're supposed to go after. But Paul says no. Paul says the ideal is all of us functioning together in our various ways with our various gifts. And when we do that, we will actually be a blessing to others. And it will bless the body itself. Specifically, we see Paul highlight the fact that God is always about elevating the lowly. He's always about honoring the dishonored. He celebrates the difference that we have. And by doing that, by being a God who always seems to go to the lowest point and raising up whoever is there, 
namely the dead, right? This effectively tears down our hierarchies. It tears down the false hierarchies that we want to set up. And it ends the addiction to comparison. We're always prone to go there. But what Paul is saying here tears all that down because we are not supposed to be the same. And he's saying if there's somebody in your group that you think has kind of a mundane gift, you know, who knows what it is? You can take your pick. I'm not going to give an example. Um, But if somebody in your group, you know, kind of like, well, you know, I guess he's kind of good at that thing. If you think that that person doesn't have much honor, Paul is saying that God himself wants to raise that person up, wants to give that person more honor. That the person who seems dispensable should be recognized as deserving of more honor. They are indispensable. That's what he's telling us in our fellowship here. And it turns the world's standards on their head. This is not the way the world works, right? We're a culture that's built on success and killing it and looking, you know, shiny, happy people, REM. You know, remember REM? Shiny, happy people holding hands. That's what the world says. And that's not the picture of the church. The picture of the church is actually weakness and brokenness and laying down lives for each other, giving up your rights for someone else, honoring the dishonored. The body, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, Paul says. So that means that no one, absolutely no one, is expendable in the church. We're all important. So what we really need for the body to function properly and to accomplish its purpose, to go and make disciples, to seek and save the lost, we need everyone to be operating in their own gifts, to actually be who they really are, instead of trying to fit into some kind of mold or trying to be somebody that they are not. Your faith sets you free to start asking dangerous questions, okay? What Paul is saying here has somewhat dangerous implications because you start asking, what do I really want to do? What am I actually gifted to do? You know, how does the Lord want to use me in the church? What are my gifts? I say those are dangerous questions because you can't predict what the results are going to be. You know, I may be worried about losing control if I'm a church leader, if I'm somebody who likes to have kind of a clear understanding of how things are going to play out and can predict outcomes, which we love to do as people. And if we start saying, you might have unique gifts that I haven't thought of yet, and that God might want to raise up and bless the body in a way that I haven't predicted, that starts to make me feel a little squeamish and nervous, if I'm being honest. And uh, so this is one of the ways the church has responded historically. We want to make you look the same, as opposed to uh, encouraging variety and encouraging you to walk in your particular gifts. And think about yourself, okay? If you start asking that question, what do I really want to do? What am I passionate about? How might God use me in the church? If you start asking that question, you'll probably be surprised what you find. Because I bet you that you have, at some point in your life, been discounting yourself and your ability to serve. I bet you, at some point or another, you probably thought, you know, God can't really use me because I don't do X, Y, and Z as well as 
you know, Sarah does. God couldn't possibly use me because I can't preach. Or, you know, I'm not good at service. You know, you might be saying these types of things. You might have discounted yourself and disqualified yourself or tried to. But that is exactly false. That's what Paul says here. That is wrong. Paul says, even if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. You actually cannot disqualify yourself. That's really good news. I don't know if any of you struggle with any kind of shame or self-defeating thoughts or anything like that. I certainly have in my life. And to hear that no matter what I'm thinking about myself, if if I'm having a bad self-esteem day, you know, that I can't disqualify myself. That God is still saying to me, I have made you, and I have called you, and I'm going to use you. That's the message. He has made you, and he has called you to himself, and he's redeemed you by his grace through forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And he wants to use you to share the good news with those who have not yet heard it. It's one of the things he's saying here, that the church actually needs you. We, as a group, since we are the church, we need you to be operating in your gifts. We need you to actually be doing the things you do well for the church. We need you so that we can actually reach out effectively. Otherwise, we're going to have, it's going to be like we're missing a finger, right? Or we might be missing an ear or something. You know, you think about it in terms of the body metaphor. We need you to help us reach out to those who have not yet heard the good news. So I encourage you today to ask the Lord to open your eyes to your gifts. Maybe you've never even asked that question before. Make that prayer today. Say that prayer. Lord, what have you gifted me to do? Ask the Lord to show you how you can help. Ask the Lord to show you how you might uh, bless the body, how you might be used by him, and see what he says. The incredible news is that he's made room for you. He's saying, I've given you these gifts, and I want to use them. That's the awesome promise. Whatever it is today, no matter how insignificant you may think it is, he is saying that it is significant. He's saying that it will be a blessing. He's saying that he wants to give it more honor. And it's going to help us as a church reach out and seek and save the lost. That's our call. So I encourage you today, ask the Lord how you might be used by him to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this good news that you have called us that you have given us gifts and abilities and you want to use us. And Lord, you have set us free to do that. You've given us a message of good news for the lost. You've given us this great news of grace and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And you want to use us to share that with people around us. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would show us our gifts, show us the things that we do well, the things that we love to do, that we're passionate about, And Lord, I pray that you would give us vision and how we might use those to serve your church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.